and welcome to the Presto Classical Podcast. My name is Paul Thomas and I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by one of the most talented, creative and engaging musicians currently working in the UK. The first saxophonist to reach the televised finals of BBC Young Musician of the Year in 2016, Jess Gillum then went on to appear at a small, intimate event that you may have heard of, the last night of the proms in 2018. Not content with letting her outstanding musicianship do the talking, Jess has also turned her talents to broadcasting, and her award-winning BBC Radio 3 show, This Classical Life, has already become an essential part of my Saturday listening routine. Welcome to the show, Jess! Well, thank you for such a lovely introduction, and thank you for having me. Hello. Jess stormed the classical charts in 2019 with her debut album, Rise, and her second album, the similarly singularly titled Time, is released on September 25th on Decca Records. Jess hails from the market town of Ulverston in Cumbria, perched on the edge of England's spectacular Lake District National Park. And on the show today, we'll be discussing her new album and how her Cumbrian roots have influenced and continue to influence her artistic vision. Before Jess Gillam came along, Ulverston was perhaps best known as the birthplace of Stan Laurel, one half of the famous comedy duo Laurel and Hardy. But I'm very happy to report that her new album certainly isn't another fine mess you've gotten yourself into, but is rather a wonderful reflection on the passage of time in a daily, personal and even astronomical sense. Jess, can you give us an overview of the themes on this album? Because while it isn't a concept album, I certainly got the sense while listening to it of a very strong narrative that runs throughout. Yes, it's an album that is exploring lots of different themes and grew out of Where the Bee Dances, the concerto by Michael Nyman, which is the kind of main work on the album. And then this narrative of passing time sort of came out of that and these ideas of cyclic motions and everybody being in a a sort of constant orbit uh, around the world and in their own mind. So a lot of these ideas of uh, circling Uh, came out in the album and it kind of took on this form of being an arc of energy throughout a day. And of course most days begin with a dawn and a superb musical rendition of, of a dawn is the second track on the album Dappled Light by Luke Howard. That was Dappled Light by Luke Howard, performed by Jess Gillum and the Jess Gillum Ensemble. One thing I noticed about this album is there's actually a very strong theme of light, both natural light and starlight that runs across the album. And I was wondering whether this was inspired or influenced by your recent move to the urban landscape of London, a city in which both day and night can be bathed in artificial light. And how has your move from rural Cymru to London affected your artistry in general? I think the the theme of light is almost accidental, but then became quite key to the album. Sort of after I'd recorded all the tracks, I sort of realised that that was something that was quite essential. Um, and I think definitely the idea of um, the frenzy and the busyness of London and the 
the kind of constant um the constant motion that's just always happening it doesn't matter where you are you can be stood on Hampstead Heath I live quite close to Hampstead Heath um because I need to be near some green space just for myself because I can't cope in the middle of a city sometimes uh, and I mean you can stand on the top of Parliament Hill and be surrounded by green fields yet you still feel this constant motion you can see it happening the skyline is motion and is happening and I think that is super exciting uh but at the same time you can't get away from the noise and until you go back to somewhere quiet you realize how how you've just been kind of a part of this constant cycle and this constant motion um so i think that has definitely inspired a lot of the music on the album in trying to create um to to sort of emulate some of that motion but then also to create a space away from that um something that is almost the opposite of that and gives the listener a space in which to kind of be and and uh, to exist um but light i do love natural light and it's something that i miss very much i miss the stars at, at night the most that being able to see constellations uh is something that i loved when i was in cumbria and now it's just not possible <laughs> there's also a huge variety of collaborators uh, from a wide variety of musical styles with music by tom york from radiohead and also will gregory one half of the electronica duo goldfrap how does this process of collaboration work and has actually your secondary career as a broadcaster been actually quite useful in introducing you to composers, styles and genres of music that you were previously unaware of? I think for me, music is about um, communication and building relationships both with the musicians that you're working with and also with the listener and with your instrument. Everything is kind of based on this uh, idea of a relationship to something, whether it's to the sound, to the person, whatever it might be. Uh, so for me, collaboration is one of the most exciting parts about being a musician, hearing other people's ideas and hearing uh, their creative um, thoughts and ideas and, and how they express themselves. Uh, so it was really important for me in this album to be uh, collaborating with um, different types of musicians, both in the way of kind of... Um, a sort of passive collaboration of performing their music and they might not have any involvement whatsoever and then the very active collaboration with some of the composers and arrangers and also uh, with the ensemble which is built up of um, close friends and musicians who I really admire um, so that's been a really key part in the album this idea of having a, um, a sense of musical community in a way and as an example of this here is Orbit by Will Gregory
there is a danger that people who live in cities can become very specialised in what they do and become pigeonholed. Oh, that's the person that does such and such a thing. How important is it for you to resist this uh, urge? And is your outlook strongly influenced by the fact you grew up in reasonably relatively small town, far from being a metropolis? I think musically, I have um, a sort of ideal that music is music and we we listen as listeners and we listen on an emotional level and it doesn't really matter what genre something falls into or what kind of music it would be classed as. It's, I think now we're moving into the realms of more mood-based listening, um, with, which streaming has really kind of propelled and encouraged in a way. Now we, it's really literally possible to listen to death metal one second and Mozart the next. And it might be that those two... I mean, Stravinsky and death metal are probably better examples. It might be that those two things are more closely related than two death metal tracks. The idea of rhythm and emotion and intent can be the same between two genres. And I think now we're kind of listening in a way, I, I hope we get to a place where we don't really bring preconceptions to certain genres. We are just able to listen as uh, listeners and as humans um, and I think that's my ideal for music of course then there are traditions and etiquettes within certain genres and there are uh, certain structures and forms that are followed in certain genres um, but I think we're moving to a place where we are just humans who can absorb information and influences and then take those on board and, and kind of absorb those and then um, give our own creative output um, and I think it's quite interesting to see how that's changing so rapidly all the time, and especially with the coronavirus lockdown, where technology was so prevalent and we had to use it more than ever before. I think now what happens to the music industry and, and the music landscape is, of course, on the one hand, terrifying, but on the other hand, it's quite exciting to see where we can go now and how we have changed and how... Um, the experience of not having live music and not being able to go and see live music will change how we perceive music and how we kind of listen. And that's something very much that the younger generation, I think, are much more interested in these days because they have access to this wide variety of music instantaneously. And I think it's it, it definitely has negative sides also because you don't... For me, um, I can... You know, I've grown up where I'm able to click a button and listen to music from all over the world. I don't have to fly to America, go to a record shop, buy the record, bring it back, put it on my record player and then experience an album as a whole. And that was actually something I was really conscious of when making the album. I really wanted it to be a whole album that was, which of course you want every album to be like that, but I wanted it to be experienced as a whole um, body of work, not just track by track, because now we are so used to just I'm I'm terrible at it just listening to a movement of a piece or listening to singles and not experiencing the whole album but there are so many incredible albums that have been conceived as albums and um, you can learn so much about the music and about the artist listening to the whole thing I think um, so that was something that I wanted to do and yeah it, it's there are so many positives to being able to have access to all different types of music but also there are some um, cautions to take too I think I think in the long run, it's about finding a balance, as you said, between engaging with this new way and yet also not losing sight, perhaps, of some of the great traditions that we've uh, that we've grown up with and that we've, that we've been handed by uh, our predecessors. And making sure that we still appreciate long form works and um, 
for me personally, I experience those much better live. I can I'm I'm much much more engaged with the symphony if I go and watch it in a concert. Whereas if I'm listening at home, I can I can try and be engaged, but I'm very conscious that I'm trying to be engaged, and I keep having to bring my attention back to it. Whereas in the concert hall, there's that energy and the electricity, and I think that is kind of um, part of the reason why young people maybe don't want to listen to a whole symphony is because it feels as though that's maybe not right. It's not right to feel like that. You should want to listen to the whole thing, and you should be able to sit down and and you know keep your attention on it for the whole thing. But it's you know, we're all human and we all have 101 things going on in our minds. So I think it's, you know, um, streaming can create a welcoming environment for that kind of listening, I think. Another important influence on your career so far has been that of fellow saxophonist John Hall. Now, can you give us a brief introduction to the influence of John Hall on you personally and also his legacy to the saxophone repertoire in general? Um, so I started studying with John when I was 16 and he's been an incredible teacher and I've learned so much about the actual workings of the saxophone from him and he's been a very inspiring player in my listening and in my earlier year, playing years as well. He's just such a, a force of saxophone. He has commissioned so much new music for it, has created an incredible legacy for the instrument and was kind of the pioneer of classical saxophone whatever that may be, in Britain and was the first person to in, in this country to forge a career being a saxophone soloist. And I'm very grateful to have kind of had the opportunity to learn from him and to learn about some of his experiences and, and his musical ideas. And yeah, he's a, a very, very interesting player and musician. You know, he does so many different things. So he produces, he composes, and he's kind of this all-round musician who can and go into lots of different parts of being a musician and uh, your previous album actually featured a composition by john harl rant which actually features some cumbrian folk tunes including the olveston volunteers <laughs> yes As you've said, the main work on this album is Michael Nyman's Where the Bee Dances, which was premiered by John Hall in 1991. Can you give us an introduction to the piece and the importance of this piece to your career in particular? Yes. Where the Bee Dances I first heard when I was, I think, 11 or 12, and I can still remember the very, very first time I heard it. And it was just one of those pieces where I thought, how on earth can the saxophone, the instrument that I play, make that sound? I just had no idea. Um, I just, it was just, it completely blew my mind. The possibilities of the instrument just kind of seemed to open up in, in listening to that piece. And of course, I'd listened to some uh, saxophone in different genres before, but hearing the kind of, the level of um, this relentless energy and passion and drive that was so clearly in the recording 
and in the writing of the piece itself it kind of has all these repeating patterns and changing rhythmic motifs and and swaps between orchestra and saxophone and kind of it just yeah completely opened my mind to the the possibilities of the saxophone and it's um it's about 15 16 minutes long and it's based on some of the songs that Nyman had written um for Peter Greenaway's Prospero's books so where the B sucks is the kind of main heart of the piece the the main melody that's at the heart of the piece and it all kind of grows out of that melody and it's just based on four chords that you hear at the beginning very very beautiful quiet chords and then this whole cacophony of sound grows out of those um, four chords and it just has this feeling of um, you get to the end and you feel like you're about to fall off the edge of a cliff and it just pushes you off on the last note. Um, it's, yeah, uh, so many... It, it, you would class it as minimalist, I suppose, but for me, it, minimalist doesn't really cover everything that it does because it has so many... It has this kind of hard-edged lyricism and intense melodic quality as well as repeating rhythmic patterns and cells. Absolutely. Well, let's hear an excerpt. So this is Where the Bee Dances, composed by Michael Nyman, performed by Jess Gillam, the Aurora Orchestra and Nicholas Collin. Michael Nyman, of course, was the person who actually coined the term minimalism in music in 1968. And while the saxophone has perhaps struggled to find a foothold in several modern classical styles, which I'm sure is a conversation for another time, it has found a natural home in minimalism, with prominent parts in music by Philip Glass and concertos by, of course, Michael Nyman and John Adams, among others. What aspects of the saxophone do you feel make it particularly suited to the minimalist and post-minimalist style? It's an instrument that is so versatile and so incredibly dynamic and it's very, very responsive and is kind of it gives you a direct representation of what you give it. So if you're if you're <laughs> whispering and you're hardly putting any air through it at all, it sounds obvious, but that's what comes out. It's 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 like an extension of the voice. It's an extension of the voice really quite literally because that's how it's activated and how the sound is kind of produced. I think one of the reasons it's found a home in minimalism is because I think part of the minimalist writing came out of the fact that it was a wind instrument, so it had to breathe. So there were so many relentless patterns and and repeating motifs and melodies, as in as in the Nyman. And I think using the soprano saxophone particularly, you have that purity of sound and the kind of liquid gold sound that you can make on the soprano, but it is a wind instrument, so it can't. It can't be as uh, repetitive as the synthesizers because it has to breathe. And then I think that tension was almost written into some of 
the music and thinking um, Steve Reich and Philip Glass in particular, I think that tension of knowing that the instrument had to breathe was almost built into the, the very, very slow changes that were happening in the music, this kind of hypnotic thing, hypnotic um, patterns that would change very slowly. I think then the knowledge that wind instruments had to breathe was almost built into that and they, they became a part of each other, I think, the writing and the instrument and the instrument and the writing. Fantastic. Well, as a prime example of post-minimalist style, here is Max Richter's On the Nature of Daylight. Minimalism is a style of music that is rooted in urban cityscapes, and the saxophone could also be described as a bit of an urban instrument, being crucial in the development of that perhaps most urban of musical forms, jazz. What drew you to the saxophone initially, and do you actually feel that your more rural upbringing brings a fresh approach to the instrument? Well, I first started the saxophone when I was seven, and that was in a carnival band in Cumbria, where my dad taught um, percussion. And it was a kind of Brazilian carnival centre. There were dance, stilts, drums, costume-making, backpack and percussion workshops. And I'd tried, really, I'd tried everything. I had no coordination for dance, no rhythm for drums, no artistic flair for costume-making. And I definitely couldn't do stilts because I was just so clumsy. And then I'd, so I'd tried everything and then came to saxophone last and... I picked it up and made a sound straight away, which I think is, at, at that age, at seven, I think that really drew me to the instrument. And then I just de- developed this real love for it and a real passion for making music with other people. I think before I, I grew a real passion for the saxophone, I'd grown a passion for being a part of a musical community and being a part of a sort of centre for joy and and being creative with other people. So that was what drew me to it particularly. And then, of course, I grew up in Cumbria and moved away when I was 18. And I think more than anything, I don't think it was as much of the rural landscapes as the rural people. I think the the connections that you develop in a small town, the, the connections with the people, everybody knows everybody. You walk down the street and you say hello to every single person. And it, and it was such a... Ulverston was such a supportive and beautiful community, um, really nurturing for its young people, really wanting the people of the town to be happy and to do well. Uh, so I think that, of course, I absolutely love the views and I love the space and the calmness of Cumbria. But I think the people more than anything are what had the biggest impact on me. Absolutely. And talking there about community and the, obviously the past few months have been incredibly challenging with regards to that sort of thing. But could you introduce us to the virtual projects that you have undertaken and what aspects of these would you actually like to keep going once things hopefully return to normal? 
So at the very beginning of lockdown, I um, decided I wanted to set up a virtual scratch orchestra, um, which to, when it was an idea in my head sounded very simple. I thought, oh yeah, people will make a video, send it in and I'll put them all together and we'll have an orchestra. And um, of course it wasn't so simple, but it was one of the best projects I've ever done. We had um, over the two projects, nearly 2000 people um, involved. And it was just to see people coming together at, at a time of such adversity and to be able to provide um, something that people could enjoy and, and be a part of was just really, really um, heartwarming. And uh, the the kind of passion that people put into it and the enjoyment that they took out of it made every every hour of staying up till 3am in the mornings to download the videos completely worth it. Um, and that idea of, I think, bringing people together in different places is definitely something I'd like to continue and would much prefer in a way to do in the real world. So I'd like to try in the real world. It's not the virtual isn't real, but in real life um, and in person, I should say. Um, so yeah, I'd really love to develop a model where when I go and do concerts, I can set up mini scratch ensembles and mini scratch orchestras in different places and um, run workshops and do mini pop-up concerts maybe for people who wouldn't have access or wouldn't have been exposed to live music before. Uh, so taking the scratch ensemble into a school or a care home or um, somewhere where people don't usually get to experience live music. But it's all very uh, um, idealistic and I would love to make it work and that's my that my goal. In a few years I'd like to have that kind of rollout model for every concert where you can get the community involved with live music. Fantastic and while obviously the past few years have seen you do lots of exciting things I was wondering whether you still find time to go back to the lakes and how important is remaining connected to your hometown to you both personally and artistically? I, I don't get there all that much and definitely not as much as I would like to. So I spent a couple of weeks there at the end of lockdown when we were allowed to move and we were allowed to travel again and I, it's just such a different immediately as soon as you step off the train or out of the car into the uh, town and into home it's just a completely different way of living and you find yourself slowly adjusting to almost be another person and then as soon as you step back into London you've stepped back into this kind of frenzy of activity and um, sort of constant motion that I was mentioning uh, so it's it, it is really I mean, actually, before I recorded the album, I spent a week in Coniston, um, not seeing anybody, just practicing in the lakes for a week because the the amount of headspace I think that's needed to to really, really be connected to the music and to really feel as though you have an artistic interpretation that you're that is authentic and that you feel remotely happy with, it requires so much headspace. And for me, I can't get that in London. I think just because I've grown up with having much more space. And I mean, it's not a huge, it's not a huge, I've made it sound like a huge deal that I now live in London. It's of course, you know, everything happens here. It's an amazing city. Um, but for especially what the themes on the album were, this idea of the passing of time and experiencing time differently and um, trying to create um, an atmosphere of space. It was really important that I had that myself. So I went home to have that. <laughs> You're perhaps wanting to recreate the sense of time and space that you get in the Lake District 
on, on an album so that the rest of the world can enjoy what you enjoy without having to uh, get in the train or get in the car to uh, to pop down to Constance. Yeah, definitely. And only if, if only you could bottle the air and sell it with the album, that would be the best experience. <laughs> yes. Well, that sounds like a good uh, marketing opportunity for somebody, definitely. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you very much uh, for speaking to me, Jess. It's been an absolute delight, and I hope the new album does just as well, if not uh, better than your previous one. So all the best for the release and uh, for your creative endeavours going forward. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you for talking to me. The show was produced by Matt Groom. Thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.